Well, good morning. Thanks for being here. And hopefully you'll feel that way after this sermon's over. I'm just going to say it. This passage is jacked up. There are at least two sections in here that are really hard to deal with. So God is graceful, and he's going he's gonna to illuminate this for us. And I'm going to try to make sure to, you know, I've got things laid out, and I don't want to go on too many rabbit trails, but we all like rabbit trails. At least me and Joel like rabbit trails. I don't know about Johnny, but yeah. You like rabbits? Do you like, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> That's what I thought. Haas and Pfeffa. Okay, here we go. I'm going to find my, so we're in Genesis chapter 19. So last week, Joel went over Genesis 18. How many people got to see that sermon or watch it online? Again, welcome to you folks online that are watching us. It's great to have people being able to participate remotely. Joel talked about, he really focused on the why and, and what the sin of Sodom was, and it wasn't kind of what we think. There was a lot more involved there. There was a lot of things on a spiritual nature going on. And if you didn't get to see it or you don't really remember what he said, go back and watch that again. We're not going to deal with that part because he just dealt with it. We're going to go through the detail. First thing we're going to do is, because it's me, we're going to talk some archaeology. We're going to update like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities because there weren't just two cities. There were five major cities. There was Zeboim, Adma, Sodom, Gomorrah, and Zoar. Zoar's in this text. And when God says he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it says right in the text, and we will read that today, all of the plain, all of the cities, and all of the peoples. So it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed. It was an entire area in the Jordan Valley that was taken out. And there were tens of thousands of people that lived there. So it wasn't a little tiny place. It was a big place. Sodom was the biggest of the big places. So we're going to talk about... Then after that, we're going to go into the text... And there is a lot of text here, and, and we're not necessarily going to read every single verse. Some of it I'm going to narrate because it's kind of like an action story, so we're just going to cruise through that to try to give you an idea in your minds of what's happening. And we're going to focus a lot on Lot, a lot on Lot. And I'm going to say Lot a lot, and we're just going to go with that. Because Lot, he's a lot like us. When we analyze his actions, we analyze his attitudes, we analyze what he does, how he thinks, where he goes, he is us. We don't identify with Abraham as well because whenever God told him to do something, he's just like, yep, and he went and did it. I personally struggle with doing that sometimes. I don't know about you, you guys might be all good to go, and you're like, yep, that's what I do. Well, I don't always do that. Lot, he, he does what we do, and it's really pulled out of the scripture. And there's a lot of, a great many things in this passage that are in the details that we gloss over when we look at scripture. Like I was just talking to Johnny this morning and Lot's wife, who does not have a name in the scripture that we know of, she, uh, the only thing we think of and the only thing I think of is she turned around and looked and was turned into a pillar of salt. Right? We all know that story. So I have trouble remembering that the entire time while Lot is dealing with the crowds and the angels are there and they're pulling their family out, that she's there with him. His wife is there with him. But it's like it just like slips out of my brain. I don't think about her. So that's, that's why we want to dive into this and get to it. So let's talk about archaeology. Yay. So traditionally, there are these two cities. Uh, let's see if I've got my right notes. Babadra and Numera. Traditionally, these are the two places that archaeologist Mora is. There, there's a couple of problems with that, um, and there are some interesting things. There's this, these little tiny balls of sulfur that are in the ground around these and in these ruins. And people call them brimstone. And so the thought was is that 
this was part of the actual destruction, and this was rained down from heaven, and you can find it in the ground, and that was one of the main reasons they thought this, this has got to be it. Turns out those are naturally occurring. Turns out when you read the Bible, those cities aren't even in the right place. They're on the opposite corner of the Dead Sea from where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And when you, we know where Abram, or Abraham was when he watched the destruction of the cities. Those two cities are not visible from his vantage point because of the hills and the, and the elevation. So he couldn't even see those if they were being destroyed, whereas he was able to look down onto the plain from where he was and see what was happening in the passage. <clears throat> Since there was a Dr. Collins, he's an archaeologist, and he is at a smaller Christian university, and between him, a couple other universities, and the Antiquities Commission of Jordan, city, the state of Jordan, which is where this is in currently, from a political perspective, he's been working on this place called Tal al-Hamam. And basically, here's a quote. This is what he said. It's very clear that Sodom was the largest Bronze Age city on the east side of the Jordan River, northeast of the Dead Sea. With that biblical information, we came looking for the largest Bronze Age city on the east side of the Jordan River, northeast of the Dead Sea. And they found it. And there are, within a five-kilometer radius of this city, there are 14 major archaeological digs of other cities. It it's perfectly situated in the Jordan Valley. And one of the things that it says in Genesis 13.10, we'll uh, read that real quick. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Why did he say like the land of Egypt? Well, how does it work? The Nile River every year floods. And when it floods, it puts all of this silt, they call it alluvial deposits, and it's super rich soil that gets spread out over the entire valley, and then they plant in that for the next year. That's how it works. This Jordan Valley is the exact same thing in a miniature version because the Jordan River is not as big. But that happened every single year. So that's why a lot said that. It's just like in the Nile. This is great. The land is fertile. Everything's going to be lovely. This is a Bronze Age city. And on top of it, there are Iron Age deposits. Well, the way this works is that when they find these old cities, people keep building over top of the same place over and over and over and over. And so you can find every era of time going back. Well, this area was inhabited continuously for over 3,000 years, this entire area. So there was a long-term culture that God destroyed. So you dig down, and they get to the Iron Age, and then they, they, they expect to find Late Bronze Age, Middle Bronze Age, and they don't. There's a 700-year gap between Abraham's time and the next inhabitation or habitation of this entire area. So they know that this culture, and, and, and they call it the, the layer of destruction because there's all kinds of crazy materials in there, which I'll talk a little bit about. So there is this giant gap where it was inhabited for 3,000 years, then this destruction layer happens, and then no one set foot on there and tried to live there for another five to 700 years. All of the other cities in the regions to the west, the north, they were all inhabited that whole time. Their cultures continued on. This whole area, nothing. So again, it lead, lends 100% credence to the fact that the word of God is true and accurate, and it is telling us history. It's not a myth or made up, like people like to say. There's this thing called, this is the current scientific theory as to what caused the destruction, right? They don't want to say it was just God, but... They're called meteoric airbursts, and in 1908, one of these happened over Tuskega, Russia, or Siberia, literally. 2,400 square kilometers of trees were flattened by that one airburst because the meteor blew up in the air instead of hitting the ground. 
This area down here is 400 square kilometers. And they actually know what direction it came from. Because in the city, there's these city walls. And there were buildings that were above the city walls. And all of those buildings are just cut off, and everything is strewn in one direction. They have one, one little courtyard. There's over 1,200 different pieces of pottery and other materials that have all been blown in one direction and slammed up against the wall. And there was this thing called a kern saddle, which is basically a big rock that's shaped into a saddle, and you sit on one end, and you put grain on the other end, and you roll it out. This rock that they found is 400 pounds, and it was flipped over. The grain is still laying. They dug it up. The grain's still there in the same direction as all that other stuff. So it was whatever came through was so powerful that it could just flip a 400-pound rock over like it was nothing besides destroying all the buildings. They found pottery that was fused into glass. There was nothing in the Bronze Age that we could do to heat anything that hot. So again, this is all what is supernatural, beyond natural. Well, that was definitely beyond the natural of what they knew about. So what we see now is they've been digging in this place for 15 years. They've found tons of evidence related to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this whole area, it all fits. So they're going to continue to work on this. It's pretty crazy stuff. And they've got a whole website. You can go look at it. They do biblical uh, analysis of the words because the word that is used to describe this area is called kikar, which means disk as opposed to valley. So it was like this big area where these cities were around the edges of it. And it all, it all fits, fits into the biblical narrative. So that's kind of fun. The rest of it won't be as fun in this message. <laughs> so let's go into the passage, chapter 19. And the first thing we do in verse 1 is we, we have Lot, Right? The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. So what happened right before this? Right before this, God and two of his angels show up with Abraham, and they're talking, and this is where Abraham has an argument with God, and he's like, you know, if you find 50 righteous people, will you destroy the city? And God says, no, I won't do that for 50. And he goes down 40, 30, goes down to 10. And God's like, if I find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. And he'd already sent his two angels away. And he stayed there, and he's still talking to Abraham. So now, the next verse in chapter 19, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And they walk up to the gate, and Lot is sitting in the gate. Well, sitting in the gate of a city means something in biblical times, in, in, in Middle Eastern times. It means that he was a, an official of the city. He was, when you sat in the gate, people would come to you with contract disputes, land, whatever, whatever the issue was, you would go to the elders who were sitting in the gate, you'd, you'd lay out your case, and they would judge and make a decision. So we know that he is part of the leadership of the city of Sodom. So there's been this transition because when he got there in the first place, it says he settled on the plains near Sodom with all of his flocks, all of his herds, all of his people. Now he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. So we know that he's got more entanglements with the city than he did when in the beginning of his journey there. Verse 2. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. So these guys walk up, and the first thing Lot does is like, you guys come stay at my place. And they say, no, we're going to spend... We're going to spend the night in the square. He's like, no, 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 no. You, you need to come to me. He's like, adamant, come to my house. There's a couple of reasons for this. One of them is a tradition in the, in the Middle East, and we know that it goes all the way back. It's, it's listed right here in the Bible, but Bronze Age. It's especially true in desert societies, nomadic tribes, and it is the idea that when you are a guest in someone's house, it is the host's responsibility to protect you at all costs. And this is a long-term, well-known thing. It's actually built into the laws, uh, specifically of Israel. So here's a little quote from a guy. He's uh, part of the Israeli Defense Forces. And he, somebody asked a question on one of these sites like Korah, 
Is there a custom in Middle, East, uh, Middle Eastern custom that requires a host to protect a person at all costs if they're in their tent or home? He says, this custom is closely related with trading nomadic societies. We know it existed since the Bronze Age, especially since it's mentioned in the Old Testament and in many writings from Aramite and Edomite nomadic societies, most notably the Nabataeans. The custom has some form in almost every society, but it is utterly necessary in desert societies in order to facilitate trade in otherwise desolate lands. As such, the custom is prevalent in the Arab and Berber world and is considered holy in Judaism and most sects of Islam. Depending on the location and the tradition, the rights of protection are usually granted after the individual decides to stay the night or share a meal with the host. In Israel, this custom is enforced by government via both law and trial. A version of the Good Samaritan law holds that standing by while others are in danger is an illegal act. And those who help in goodwill may not be prosecuted for harm done while attempting to help, say, a sick person. They are also eligible for monetary compensation in accordance with aiding the said individual if they lost substantial income while aiding an individual. During the trial, a judge may decide the person was acting out of goodwill if he physically protects a guest, for instance. If the host injured an aggressor attempting to harm the guest, the host is held liable under self-defense, not aggression. So this law, we know it was in effect in, these, in all of these regions. I believe Lot knew that these weren't just a couple of normal travelers. Just like as soon as they walked up to Abraham's area, he knew that these were angelic beings and even God himself who stayed back to talk to Abraham. He also knew about the society that he was living in and amongst. So he knew that he needed to protect these gentlemen at all costs. So he forced the issue, you have to come to my house, you have to stay with me, because you can't stay out here. Nothing good's going to come of that. And they give in. And they say, okay, we're going to go do that. So these next few verses, verse 4 and, and up through 11, I'm not going to necessarily read them verbatim, because you can, you can all read them verbatim. But I want you to think back, how many people have ever seen any movie or TV show set in the Middle East? Anyone? Is there no one who's not seen something ever set in the Middle East? So try to picture in your mind this Middle Eastern city. And Lot brings these gentlemen into his house. And he's going to feed them, wash their feet, they'll rest, and then he wants to send them on their way the next morning. What happens? Before they lay down, the men of the city start beating on the door of the house. And I will read this. It does say in verse 4, The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, Joel mentioned this, to the last man. They believe there was probably 15,000 people living in Sodom. That's a significant number of men that are part of that, right? Some fraction of that, half or some, you know, something in that range. They surrounded the house and they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. That's a lot of people surrounding his house. So what does he do? He slides open the door. He slides out of the house. He closes the door behind him and he's like, guys, don't do this. He says, don't act so wickedly please. These men are under my protection. And then he says the first thing in this passage that is super messed up, in my brain anyway. He says, I have these two virgin daughters, and I will send them out to you, and you guys can do whatever you want, but leave these men alone. I have two daughters. Lots of people have daughters. I cannot imagine any way in my life where my brain would get to that place. I mean, it's just wrong on so many levels. And I can see a little bit of a twisted road where Lot is getting there in his logic, right? He's like, I got to protect these guys, and they're coming from God. I have to do something. Now, I don't truly believe, like, that this part didn't happen. Like, he didn't send his daughters out. 
and give them to the crowd, but he offered. So I, don't, I truly believe God would not have allowed that to occur, just like this is kind of a, like a dark reflection of Isaac and Abraham on Mount Moriah. God did not allow him to sacrifice his son. But in this case, unlike with Abraham and Isaac, God asked Abraham to go do that as a test of his faith. No one told Lot to do this. He comes up with this in his own mind. And like I said, I don't really understand how he would get there from a logic perspective or a personal perspective. What kind of relationship? Could you imagine hearing your own dad saying that when you're a daughter? That's fine. I'm just going to send you guys. You know, yeah. No, it's not good. None of it's good. So that is the first part where there's a lot of weird things going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole region about, and we see more of it later on. But the angels decide that's not going to happen. So he's standing out there, he's talking to them, he's telling them, you know, here, you can have my daughters. And they yell at him. Remember, he's been sitting in the gate. He's one of the elders of the city. He's one of the judges. And they, they say, stand back. Who is this guy? He's like a, he's a foreigner who's come into our land, and now he's going to judge us. And then they tell him, we're going to do the worst to you than we're going to do to these guys. So it doesn't show you that they have a lot of respect and, and whatnot for him. And again, there's thousands of guys out here surrounding this whole area of his house. And he's, you know, he's trying to tell them, they're under my protection, and they're, they're like, get out of the way. So then the angels open the door, grab him, pull him back in. Right? This is all going on. His wife is in the house, his daughters are in the house, and the angels are pulling him back in. And then they strike the first ranks of the men blind. And this is in verses 9 through 11. And this is where it gets really weird, and Joel touched on this. It says that the men were wearing themselves out, so they were physically exhausting themselves, trying to get to his door as they were blind. That's not normal. That doesn't make any sense at all. Even if you're doing bad things and you're part of a crowd and you're rioting and you get blinded, you don't keep doing the exact same thing you were doing. You're like, I can't see, and, you know, and you're trying to deal with that. But they were wearing themselves out trying to get to the house to do what it is they came to do, which is, again, I can't explain that level of depravity in someone's mind. But that's what was going on here. And so when I hear people try to compare our current society and the Western world to Sodom because of our depravity, we're not even anywhere close to that yet, right? There are still, God's still working. People are being saved every day. The churches are here, and we're trying to evangelize, and we're given to missions, and we're doing all these things. And God's common grace is still out there. People do good things to each other. This is not, we're not here yet. Will we get there? That's up to the Lord. But we're not there yet. So we need to make sure that when you see bad things going on in the world, we should feel for those things. And we should pray for people and we should, we should have the right attitude about it. But we don't want to make comparisons that aren't accurate. They're hyperbole. So that's just, you get that for free. Let's throw that in for you. Now we go to verse 12. And this first section, this is all the stuff that's going on inside of Sodom. I'm going to read verse 12 and following. Then Lot said, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out to this to the or bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Let's bring out a couple things here. He didn't have to go far to find his sons-in-law. Why is that? Because his sons-in-law were included in the phrase, To the last man. They were in the crowd with everyone else. 
And even though he was an elder in the city and they were going to marry his daughters, they didn't even believe him when he told them that God was going to destroy the city. Even though they probably witnessed a bunch of, a bunch of them being blinded. But they don't care. So it shows that there's this, there's, Lot is not displaying a lot of authority and a lot of gravitas in terms of his position in the city. And his sons-in-law were participating in the exact same thing that all the rest of them were. So that was something that struck me, that he would still want to go get his sons-in-law and bring them out, even though he knew where they were during this whole, whole thing. So this has gone on all night, because they came to the city at evening, right? They went into his house, and then verse 15 says, as morning dawned. So this has been this whole crazy, riotous, nut, nutcase thing. It's kind of a Jerry Springer show. That's what me and Johnny were talking about. This is, this is all episode of Jerry Springer, all the bad things that go on in there. <laughs> As morning dawned, so the angels, this is where they, God shows his mercy in a, in a very real way in terms of what he does. He says, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you're going to get swept away in the punishment. Verse 16, this one struck me too, but he lingered. So the angels are just like, okay, time to go. I'm gonna, we're going to destroy the city. You take your wife and daughters. you got to go. And it says, Lot lingered. Why would he do that? I mean, we, we're told in the New Testament, blessed are those that see, but more blessed are those that do not see, right? This is Jesus with Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas because he's like, I need to see the nail prints. I need to, you know, see the wound in your side. And he said, you know, you're blessed because you've seen. But more blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Here we have physical, divine beings who are servants of God standing in front of you, telling you, leave. And he hesitates. I mean, the word linger, it's just like he's like washing his hands and walking around and like, uh, 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 what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Why? Why would he do that? Why would I do that? Everything in his entire life, all of his wealth, his future son-in-laws, his colleagues, his position in the city, all of it, he knows is going to be wiped out. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what tomorrow brings. And he's afraid. He is scared out of his wits about what's going to happen. I can identify with that feeling. And he doesn't even know what's going to happen with the destruction. Like they say, we're going to destroy the city. He doesn't know what that looks like. So he's having some trouble deciding what he's going to do. He's having some trouble putting his faith in God, who ha who's actually physically standing in front of him. I think it's a lot more reasonable for us, not good, but reasonable to understand how we might have difficulty trusting in God when he's not physically standing in front of us, right? But he lingered. So what do they do? It says they are merciful to him. They physically grab onto Lot, his wife, and his daughters and pull them out of the city, which is an amazing testimony to God's mercy. Because he told them in the beginning you guys need to leave the city or you'll be swept up in the destruction. So now they're telling them, leave right now, and they're not leaving, so they pull them out. And also in verse 17, he says, escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you're swept away. So now Lot is just demonstrating even more. He's like entrenching himself in his own fear because when you get into verse 18 and following, now he starts arguing with them. So first he's, he's hesitating, and, they, and they're pulling him. And then he says, wait, I, I, I'll never make it to the hills. I can't get there. He, I think he's just afraid he's going to be swept up in the destruction. He's, 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 an old, he's old. He's like 
70s, 80s at this point. And he, so he starts saying, I'll never make it to the hills. Can I go to this little city over here? It's just a tiny city. Can I just go there and be safe there? And they say, okay, we will grant you this request. We will not destroy that city. That city was slated for destruction. That is the city of Zoar. It was slated to be destroyed with all the rest of these. It's the same society. It's the same culture. And he asked to go there instead of getting to the hills. And they say, yes, we won't destroy that. Why would he do that? Okay, I ask myself, why would I do that? Well, it's familiar. I can think of a lot better safety going to another city with a culture and people that I understand. You know, it's like, I'm going to go to, you know, I'm, I'm living in Denver and I'm going to go to Colorado Springs to be saved. Okay, great. As opposed to go up in the middle of the Rocky Mountains where no one is around and that's where you need to go right now. So he's like, what am I supposed to do? Again, there's no structure. There's, there's way less certainty understanding what's going to happen if I just run to the hills. What does that even mean, run to the hills? So I can see all of these thoughts churning in his brain. And they say, okay, go ahead and go. It said, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. So there's different disagreements between scholars of how much time it took him to get from Sodom to Zoar. I think it was anywhere between one and eight hours. It, it isn't necessarily, doesn't really matter, but people try to establish the exact timeline of the destruction, and I'm not going to do that. Um, So then it says that, verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. 26, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. I don't... I don't understand that. I mean, I understand that she was judged. But there's an interesting archaeological fact. When they are going through these layers, the layers above the destruction layers and the layers below the destruction layers have 1% salinity, meaning it has 1% salt content in the soil. The destruction layer has 6% salt content in the soil. I was like, that's interesting. I don't know what it means, but it's interesting. <laughs> so there was something related to salt in all of this, and why did she become a pillar of salt? We have no other example of that in the scripture or anywhere else. It's just this one little boom. She turned back, she became salt. Was it because of something she saw? We, we don't know. But we do know what happened. Abraham, so now we go to Abraham. So like I said, it's kind of like watching one of those movies. You have all this stuff going on with Lot getting pulled out of the city and then running for Zoar, and then the camera switches over to Abraham, where he is. He went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the over out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Lot gets saved for two reasons. One, his own righteousness, which is established in the New Testament, which I will read that verse. And God's relationship with Abraham and Abraham's relationship with Lot. Remember, earlier, Lot, as living in that area, there's the five kings versus the four kings, and Sodom and their crew lose, and Lot and all of his possessions are taken as plunder by the other kings that won, and Abram, or Abraham goes and gets them. So he cared about his nephew, and God knew that he cared about his nephew. So he, that's part of the reasons why he did what he did for Lot. 
and even gave in to Lot's demands of, I want to go here and not go to the mountains and, and whatever else. <clears throat> then we move on to the next strange section of this. I call this the next generation. Verse 30, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. Lot's still demonstrating a lot of fear. Why is he afraid to live in Zoar? He begged to go to Zoar. And now he's afraid to live there. Is it because he's now got PTSD and he's like, there is no safe city to live in ever? Because God could just destroy it at any time? That's his experience. I mean, he's been a, he was a nomadic herdsman for his whole life. He finally lives in a city and it's gone. I don't know. He lost his wife. He lost all of his earthly possessions. He lost his position. He lost everything. He's starting from ground zero as somebody who's in his 70s or 80 years old. Also, Zoar had the same culture as all the surrounding cities, which he knows is not good. So I think there's a lot of things we can come up with to say why he's like, you know what, we got to dip. We're not going to stay here. We got to go. Exactly. Verse 31. And this is the part I'd like to skip, but we're not going to skip it. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. First fallacy. They just left the city of Zoar. There were men there. So she's not thinking straight. However, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. How many people think that's moral? How many people think that's immoral? Yeah, we all think this is immoral. Is it, is it that simple? I mean, in my brain, it's pretty simple. But when you look at all of this, Lot's daughters were raised in Sodom, in that culture. They were high on the list of sexual deviancy. They did all kinds of things. And their moral structure was pretty, pretty low. So that brings me to 2 Peter. Peter says... In verse chapter or Second Peter, verse two, verses four through eight. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read the whole verse, but I'm gonna go to verse seven. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That's how we know Lot was righteous. Besides the fact that God saved him, you could make an argument that the only reason he saved him was because of his relationship with Abraham. You could say that. But it's not true. He was righteous. I imagine when he sat in the gate, he tried to judge righteously. And Peter lays it out for us and says that his soul was tormented day by day by what he saw and heard. Well, his daughters were growing up in that same environment. It doesn't say his daughters were righteous. It doesn't say anything about it. It just, we know that's where they grew up. So their thinking and their understanding of what right and wrong is, our understanding of right and wrong is based on the scripture, and it's also based on the fact that we have lived in a country and in a whole civilization that at their roots were founded on Judeo-Christian ethics and values, the Ten Commandments, for example. 
there were lots of Christians, and you have different historians who argue whether or not we were a Christian nation in the beginning or not. I'm not going to get into that. But we do know that all of the Western world was heavily influenced by Christianity, which is based on Judaism. So we have this societal background layer, like background radiation of morality that comes from God that is inundated into our minds. None of us think stealing is right. None of us think committing adultery is right. I don't care who you are. Most people agree that those things are not right. This is not the society that they lived in. They lived in a society where, you know, taking people off the street and forcing them to have sex was fine. So their mental moral compass was busted. That's what I'm going to say. That's one of the reasons why they thought this was okay. But what did God do with this? Because I look at that and I'm like, that's wrong. God's going to smack them down. No, he's not. That's not what happens. And this is very interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9. Well, first, first let me read the, uh, the, the end of that. Verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. How many people have heard of Moab in the Bible? Right? Moab is a nation. Moab, there's a lot of things going on there. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. The Moabites and the Ammonites were thorns in the side of Israel through the whole time they're trying to settle the land of Canaan. So they were around for a long time. Deuteronomy 2.9 and 2.19. This is Moses getting ready to go into the promised land and take it over, and God's talking to him. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given our to the people of Lot for a possession. Verse 19, And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I've given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. So not only did God not punish the girls for their ways, he has preserved their children of Lot as a blessing to Lot and told Moses to leave them alone as you enter into Canaan. Now, there's other things that happen. Everybody remember the story of Balaam, the prophet and his talking donkey? right? Who hired Balaam? A guy named Balak. Who was Balak? King of Moab. He tried to get Israel cursed. He didn't even know who they were. They just showed up, and he's like, I just see this great host of people. This is bad. This is bad for our country. So then he hires a prophet to curse them not knowing that they were descended from Abram and they were, they were, he was descended from Lot and they're all the same family tree. Eglon, king of Moab, later on, he suppressed Israel 18 years. He was in charge of them and took tribute and slaves and all kinds of things. There's a bunch of prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel related to Ammonite, the Ammonites and the Moabites that they will be destroyed and judged for the things they did against Israel and the practices that they practiced. So it all comes out in the wash. Remember, this society lasted for 3,000 years approximately, a continuous time, and God was long-suffering like he always is. So we, we, we read these passages and it's like, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, and we forget. Oh, there was 400 years between this and this, even though in the Bible it's one sentence to the next. All of these things are God working things out and planning things. And the one thing I wanted to bring out about how amazing God is, where he can take seriously jacked up things like this and turn them into good, is the book of Ruth. Where was Ruth from? Moab. She's in the line of Christ, a descendant of Lot from an illicit union where his daughters literally raped him and she is in the line of Christ. God took that and made something the ultimate good. Because without Christ, we have nothing. 
We are nothing. Worship team, if you'd be so kind as to grace us with your presence on the stage. So we have a couple of things to think about here. And one of them is, how are we like Lot? How do we exhibit the same kind of behaviors he exhibited? And the struggles that we have to deal with. How many of us would love to have a couple of angels just show up and tell us what to do? I would. I mean, I know it's not cool to say that because we're supposed to, you know, believe without seeing. And you're more blessed if you believe without seeing. Sometimes I'm just like, can I just see just once because I'm really struggling with not seeing and I would like to see, please God. And he always says, nope, my grace is sufficient for you, just like it was for Paul and everybody else. So that's trust. That's faith. We have to have faith. So I'm going to pray. They will worship. And when they give me the magical signal, I'll come back up here and finish up. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the exquisite detail you pour into these pages if we just have a mind and a will to look for it. And you show us real people with real lives that really lived and really died. And many of them, we will see them in the afterlife. It's amazing, Lord. We thank you so much for it. We pray that you would take this time of worship, Lord. You would pour out your spirit on us here in this room, Lord, and those that are watching remotely, God, that they would feel your power and your presence. And you would empower the worship team, Lord, that the music, which is such an amazing gift from you, Lord, just music in general, you would pour out your spirit through that, Lord, and that we would be truly blessed by you and by the talents you've given to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is that good and acceptable and perfect. When we are faced with indecision and fear, we just don't know what's going to happen, and there's bad things going on in our lives or struggles are going on in our lives, trials. They don't have to be bad per se, but they could be difficult. What Lot didn't demonstrate in this passage, he demonstrated how you try to deal with those things without God in a lot of ways. He gave into his fear. He gave into his indecision. He just didn't know what to do, and he allowed someone else to make his decisions for him instead of being focused and saying, okay, this is what God wants me to do, so I'm going to go do that. He fought against what God wanted him to do. And whenever we are in those same situations, I just want us to remember Lot. And remember that the way that you don't fight against God and you don't be indecisive and not know what to do because you are in your own mind instead of in the mind of Christ is Romans 12, 1 and 2. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind because our minds is where we get trapped. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. He said, don't be anxious for tomorrow because the, the stuff that's going on today is good enough. You don't need to deal with anything else besides what's happening right now. Now, Lots of people suffer from anxiety, and it can be crippling. And it's in our minds. I've told you people before, I suffer from depression. When I'm in a depressive episode, the entire world seems very dark. And when people say things to me, I twist them to be, to be dark, to be negative. No matter how they meant it. I, I don't care how they meant it at that point. I am receiving it in a certain way. And if I just let myself sit in that, 
it's bad for everybody. So that's my wife. Not fun to be around. How do I deal with that? God doesn't magically snap his fingers and just say, okay, your depression's gone. All you have to do is pray and it's gone. He doesn't do that. He uses that as a tool to make me into his unique child, inheritor of the kingdom, like all other children of Jesus Christ. And he uses those struggles and trials in my life to bless and work on the behalf of my brothers and sisters in the kingdom. That's the purpose of sanctification. That's how the whole process works. You go through negative, hard, bad things, and God uses those things just like he used the union between Lot and his daughters to create the line of Christ. All things work together for good that those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's kind of a cliche verse in a lot of cases these days. That doesn't make it any less true. God takes bad things in my life and uses them for the benefit of my brothers and sisters. He does the same thing to everybody that's here. That's why I want you to remember Lot. Remember his indecision. Remember his fear. Remember him. I want structure. I want security. I don't know what's going to happen. Let me try to take control, right? How many people want to take control? Anybody? He's trying to take control. I can't, I can't run to the hills. I want to go to Zor. Can I go to Zor? I'll be in charge. I'll go to Zor. Okay, go ahead. Go to Zor. God lets us make those decisions even though they're not the best decision. How many people did Lot wind up saving, though, in the city of Zoar that did not get destroyed because he was trying to take control and do what God wasn't wanting him to do? And then he turned around later, and he, since he was afraid to stay there, he actually did what God asked him to do. He went to the hills instead of just going straight there. Is it better for us to just do what God wants, or is it better for us to take detours on the way? I think you all know the answer to that question. If you don't, see me after. Yeah, detours are fun. No. So we have communion on the right and the left up front. We have boxes in the back to, and is there some up front too? Or are they just in the back? For giving as part of our worship, we give to the Lord. And I just want us to remember a lot. Remember how much like us he is. And remember also that God will use all those things for his glory and his goodness. And it's right here in the Old Testament in the pages of Scripture. It's, it's amazing. So let's finish worshiping.